0: Hi there, I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week, designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. And thanks for listening for the week of December 4th, 2023. Nearly two decades ago, Congress gave the Department of Homeland Security the authority to waive environmental laws to build barriers and roads near the border. Conservationists have kept an eye on that in southern Arizona ever since. Ron Dungan reports that one nonprofit is using wildlife cameras to document how the wall affects animal migration.
1: Eamon Herity drives a beat-up Toyota pickup in southern Arizona. It's late summer, and a storm swept through the region the night before. As we pass through the desert grasslands, clouds break over the Huachuca Mountains to the north and over Mexico to the south. The mountains are what make this region unique. They're called Sky Islands.
2: And they're these high mountains that sprout from desert lowland seas, if you will. So they're higher elevation habitats that are surrounded by hot, arid, Sonoran desert
1: environments. Herity works for the Sky Island Alliance. A nonprofit that focuses on these southern Arizona ecosystems, which are home to deer, coyotes, bobcats, and other species. Parts of Sky Island country brush up against the border, where the government started building a wall during the Trump administration. The Alliance has installed cameras to see how the changes might affect wildlife migration. So here's a white tailed
2: deer. Yeah, these cameras are looking at wildlife movement in the region, specifically, how do animals navigate the infrastructure on the border.
1: They take tens of thousands of photos every month. As he replaces batteries and memory cards, he flips through the camera's monitor. Oh, that's cool.
2: We have a black bear crossing from Mexico coming up. Kinda ambling up across the road looking east and west as he gets just to the north side of the road and then he disappears right up this wash.
1: He'll review the images on his computer later, but for now he takes a quick pass through them and spots raccoons, javelina, and other animals. Oh, here's a
2: crazy rainstorm. It's such a fun adventure to roll through the cameras because you never know what you're going to get. It feels a little bit like a scavenger hunt as you're flipping through the photos keeping an eye out for what fun creature
1: might be there. But they don't see a lot of as people. Emily Burns is program director for the Alliance.
3: Over the last three years in the San Rafael Valley, it's just been over a thousand detections of people. 75% of that have been border patrol, so actually law enforcement or construction crews that are working on the border infrastructure itself.
1: They also spot hunters or cowboys on horseback.
3: But it's very rare that we actually see people that likely crossed, walked over the border.
1: Border Patrol has the legal authority to waive environmental laws to build infrastructure. But it can conduct its own environmental reviews and does so frequently.
4: So we make sure to consult with biologists from the federal land management agencies to see how to best mitigate a lot of the impacts that we know our infrastructure is going to have
1: that's Pete Bittigan of the Border Patrol. He works with the Sky Island Alliance and federal agencies that manage lands near the border.
4: When they had proposed to us to place these cameras along the border to monitor these small wildlife passages, we consulted with the federal land management agencies in those areas to ensure that Sky Island Alliance had the proper permits in place.
1: After talking with conservationists, the agency created small openings in the bollard-style wall that went up during the Trump administration. They're about the size of a piece of paper and can allow small animals to pass through.
4: For me personally, I grew up in southern Arizona. I think it's really important to protect what we have. And so any time that I'm seeing some sort of cool animal captured on camera, you know, doing well and thriving here in Arizona, I, I can appreciate that.
1: Burns... The program director says that's exactly the kind of thing she hopes to accomplish with this project.
3: While well, we hope that the data will be hard-hitting and you know, convince policymakers to change border policy, more than anything, we hope that people will see the images of the wildlife living at the border and fall in love with them like we have.
0: Ron Dungan, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And you can find part two of this story online at kjzz.org in education news. Artificial intelligence, or AI, has become a hot topic at universities over the past year. That's because generative AI tools are capable of writing and creating images, and that has some professors concerned about cheating. But as Bridget Dowd reports from our Education Desk, Arizona universities are finding ways to dispel some of that fear, educating staff and students on how they can use those tools for good.
5: The Arizona Board of Regents has not provided a policy or guidance to the universities regarding AI, leaving the schools to make their own decisions about acceptable use. Both Arizona State University and the University of Arizona have created new syllabus guidelines for their classes. In those, teachers can outline whether they want students to be able to use AI a lot, a little, or not at all. Mina Johnson-Glenberg directs the Embodied Games XR Lab at ASU, XR stands for Extended Realities.
6: We create content along those realities for generally STEM education, so we make games for like fourth through adult
5: age learners. She says the general philosophy at ASU is that they want students to graduate being AI literate. AI is going to be around for a long time. It's not going to go away. So
6: we want our students to have some experience working with it.
5: Instructors are encouraged to think about AI being a collaborator. That means never putting it in the driver's seat by using it to turn in an entire assignment, like writing a paper, but integrating it in other ways.
6: And then in the final product, when you turn it in to your professor or instructor, you need to cite where you did that. So using you know proper APA style or whatever citations for where the AI
5: was used. Johnson-Glenberg teaches a class that allows students to do just that, using AI as a tool to enhance the work they're already doing. One of her students made a game to help with Parkinson's disease rehabilitation. She needed to make an interface, like what would the game look like?
6: But she's not an artist, right? And so students used to turn in little stick-drawn figures to show me what it would look like. But now, with these text-to-image AI generators, she made this gorgeous
5: interface. Another one of her students used it to code a new keyboard for people with cerebral palsy.
6: He was a pretty good coder, but he used um, AI to help him code up some of the language. And um, he said that it helped him go 50% faster. Now it makes errors, right? So you have to know a little bit how to correct the errors from the AI, but the fact that he was able to use that and save time was just very beneficial.
5: She says the most important thing to note about these tools is they're nowhere near perfect. For instance, a guest speaker asked an image generator to show a photo of frozen pears. So he showed us the picture, and indeed there were
6: baskets filled with pears that weren't quite frozen, but on top of them were like these weird heads that looked
5: like Elsa. The generator picked up a character from the Disney movie Frozen instead of understanding the word as an adjective. But as some tools make obvious errors, others are more advanced. That's why ASU has put together student and staff committees that lead discussions on AI. Frank Liu is pursuing a PhD in computer engineering. He heads up the student committee.
7: We discuss different topics that the faculty gives us, and our goal is to be able to help inform decision-making at ASU with regards to um, generative AI policy.
5: His group wants to unpack fears among professors and educate them on how AI could be used positively.
7: Like, I use ChatGPT for grammar. I think, like, when I'm writing stuff, it can fine-tune and find, you know, small grammar things. I ask it for suggestions of, like, How can I reword this sentence to make it stronger?
5: Barney McCabe directs the Institute for Computation and Data-enabled Insight at U of A. He says the university has created a new working group where about 150 faculty, staff, and students are having an ongoing conversation about AI. One of the reasons for that is that last fall, the university's plagiarism checkers started looking for the use of AI in student work.
8: And we didn't understand how they had come about their understanding of what constituted plagiarism or inappropriate use of the tools, and they didn't give us any information. So, in fact, the recommendation was to turn that off as quickly as possible.
5: That's because the program was turning up false positives. He says much like ASU, U of A wants students to know how to use these tools because they're already being used in the professional world.
8: At the end of the day, it's your responsibility to make sure that what you turn in, what you have written, you can stand behind. And you have to be part of that creative process.
5: And if there's one thing that all three of these AI aficionados agree on, it's that these tools will ultimately be more friend than foe. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast.
0: In business news... Funding for Ukraine will dry up at the end of the year unless Congress approves $61 billion the Biden administration is asking for in their fight against Russia. This week, an emergency spending bill to provide that security assistance was blocked in the Senate as Republicans demanded tougher border enforcement. The sense of urgency is reverberating all the way here to Arizona, where three members of the Ukrainian parliament visited the state this month to impress upon the state's leaders and residents to support their war effort. As Phil Latsman reports, they say Arizona has a lot to gain from helping Ukraine. The three members traveled 10,000 kilometers, or more than 6,000
8: miles, to Phoenix to get their message across. On their four-day trip, they spoke to and visited with members of the state legislature, U.S. Senator Mark Kelly, plus ASU students and faculty.
9: We've taken another strategy here, and this trip is authorized by President Zelensky and his office. We are spread around different states.
8: That's Maria Mezentseva, a member of parliament from Kharkiv, Ukraine's second-largest city. She says Arizona is not just like any state on their journey.
9: The argument which comes specifically in Arizona to support our case is the uh, military industry and weapons production, which creates jobs, which increases uh, the tax payments and boosts the economy. And a small number of Ukrainian pilots from her hometown
8: have been training to fly F-16s at Morris Air National Guard in Tucson.
9: The university, which uh, these uh, amazing Ukrainian pilots are graduating from, uh, is located in my uh, constituency in the city of Kharkiv, just 40 kilometers from the Russian border. And you know we understand the rules of war and the rules of conducting successful operations, and that's aviation.
8: Well, Kovalchuk is a parliament member from Ziavil, about a three hour drive west from the capital of Kiev.
10: He has a special connection here and says the state will benefit. I used to live in Arizona back in 2000s, you know, for five years. I've spent a lot of time here in Arizona. And again, I want to underline that this bill will provide a lot of jobs and increase in uh, economic increase for Arizona because Arizona will get much out of it he says funding will aid defense contractors based in the state including a top secret project that's in the works arizonians will be able to uh, produce a new types of weapon modern weapon that will be used in ukraine and after all they'll be uh, selling that equipment uh, needed equipment to uh, uh, other countries as well
8: according to a report pennsylvania arizona and texas are the three states that benefited the most from the aid that has already been sent to Ukraine. Arizona is just behind Pennsylvania, having received almost $2.2 billion from the production of munitions and other procurements. And that's despite the fact that three out of six from the state's GOP delegation voted against it.
10: Kovalchuk believes it should be a slam dunk. America will not be sending funds to Ukraine, uh, as everyone thinks, you know, this money will be spent here in the United States of America making more military and defense equipment. Some members of Congress have also tied additional funding to policy changes at the border in order to
8: stem the flow of migrants. Kovolchuk says the timing of the most recent surge, though,
10: may not be a coincidence. There is a parallel between our experience when a lot of immigrants at the same time appeared. At Belarusian border. By the way, the way they were getting there, they were getting there by planes that uh, uh, appeared out of nowhere. It's all big conspiracy that Russia is capable of. And finally, Olena Komenko is the third
8: member of the delegation to visit the state. She's from the capital of Kiev and came prepared with a parable related to Arizona's capital. Straight out of Greek mythology,
9: the the name of this city is also symbolic for us. Phoenix is mythological, immortal bird associated with the sun, obtains new life by rising from ashes of its predecessor. Our quest for liber- liberty is immortal, and we will rise from ashes to burn our enemies. And the American people, could be proud that they contributed to that resurrection. Our birds, our pilots, who are trained in Tucson, will fly soon to liberate our homes, and we are grateful to America.
8: Phil Latzman, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. Food is economy and even a form of tourism, and Arizona tribes are trying to tap into the potential of agritourism to reshape their communities financially. Gabriel Pietrazio meets with some Native chefs at the Western Spirit, Scottsdale's Museum of the West.
11: Whistling from a wooden flute sets the scene for an evening filled with Native traditions of old and new, even food. Eight chefs and foodway demonstrators, near and far from Mesa to Yuma, traveled to Old Town last month to showcase their uniquely native flavors at the Arizona Indigenous Edible Experience. It's an annual gathering organized by the nonprofit Arizona American Indian Tourism Association. It spotlights some of the state's gifted indigenous foodies through an intertribal celebration of culinary prowess. Blue Adams, founder of Indigahub, was hired to curate their lineup and sought to...
3: Create an event that encompassed everybody from the farmers and growers to the producers, all the way to the chefs.
11: Reneto Mario Etcity is one of them. This Navajo chef owns the Phoenix-based The Rez, an urban eatery. It's a pop-up restaurant that specializes in elevating simple indigenous ingredients, to sophisticated native dishes. Tonight, he's preparing a bison black bean chili. It's served on a gluten-free blue corn crepe with an arugula roasted corn salsa, and it's topped with a pinon nut cream. He's sharing that special meal with hungry guests while teaching me the Navajo word for buffalo amid plating dozens of tacos at his table. In our language, you
3: say ayane, ayane. ayane. It takes me about three days to shop for an event just to happen.
11: (laughs) Danella Bellin of Nella's Innovative Creations, who offers catering, food demos, and cooking services, spent that much time prepping three different hot and cold dishes. The cold, a Sonora Wheat Berry Blue Corn Mush Parfait with berry compote, and the hot, a maple winter squash with prickly pear syrup topped with saguaro seeds she left a comfortable sous chef position to open her own business in March. Belen was invited last year. She came back, and this time around...
3: I'm actually representing myself more in my business. It made me very proud.
11: Jaron Bates is another accomplished Dineh chef. A forager, pitmaster, storyteller, and co-owner of Wild Arizona Cuisine, he helped open the table at the Junipine Resort north of Sedona. He was even named a semi-finalist for this year's James Beard Foundation's Best Chef in the Southwest.
4: Before I started doing hyper-local cuisine here in Arizona, I did it to see if I could test myself.
11: Bates left the world of fine dining behind and now purchases the traditional products of native purveyors, like tepary beans from Ramona Farms. Those are used as the base for a maple frosting to glaze atop his signature honey and pinal cake.
4: Not only does it help your body, but it helps your soul as well and your your mind to kind of like get those nutrients that as natives we lost with colonization.
11: Chefs like Bates, Belin, and EtCity see a future for tribal agritourism in Arizona, brimming with untapped potential. More than 19,000 native farmers and ranchers tend to nearly 80% of all farmlands in Arizona. They outnumber any other demographic and even account for almost a fourth of all native producers nationwide. The Navajo Nation is most poised to reap the possible profits in Arizona. Almost 16 million acres of farmland is managed by more than 16,000 Navajo-owned and operated farms. They generate about $67 million annually. But as Berlin searches the source for native foods, there are still hurdles that producers face, from finding space to collecting capital.
3: I'm still learning. I'm still trying to find them. I'm still trying to see if their product is available to me more. And by then, I truly believe that we're going to have more farms to rely on. We're going to have more indigenous represented businesses to work with.
11: Until then, for Adams...
3: We have to have the voices of these
0: indigenous farmers, food producers, and chefs there front and center.
11: For KJZZ News, I'm Gabriel Pietarazio reporting from Scottsdale.
0: And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. From our original production, The Show This Week, this conversation sparked a lot of discussion in the
7: newsroom. Here's co-host Mark Brody. Imagine if your house or land you own was put up for sale and then sold without you ever being aware of any of it. That's been happening in Arizona and elsewhere where criminals steal IDs and falsified documents. State lawmakers earlier this year did approve a new title alert system. Residents need to opt in, but if they do, they get an email if anything is recorded against their name. Most counties have already put the system in place. Susan Nicholson is commissioner of the Arizona Department of Real Estate. I spoke with her earlier this morning and asked what her office is seeing in terms of people who own property, seeing it go up for sale without their knowledge.
12: And mm. in, in the industry, it's been identified and sort of labeled and called deed fraud or title theft. And unfortunately, we hear about uh, two to three cases a week that make their way to the Department of Real Estate where our licensees have, in a proactive manner, identified that a person is impersonating a seller. So it involves identity theft. And they try to involve real estate licensees to actively market and procure a buyer uh, in order to sell someone else's property and steal all of the equity. And I can tell you, Mark, it is a devastating crime. Property ownership is the number one way that Americans build generational wealth. And when a criminal comes along and steals those properties, it devastates not only the current homeowners, it devastates those those families, those generations to come because it's a tremendous amount of wealth that's being taken.
7: Yeah. Well, so if two to three cases are coming to your office each week, is it safe to say that there are some number more that just aren't making it to you? Absolutely. So are you finding that this is happening to folks living in houses is this happening to people who own who own land is it happening to both
12: It's happening to both and so what we initially saw early in us realizing this was happening and to be clear this is happening across the nation this isn't an Arizona specific thing um, but as industry professionals title insurance companies escrow officers r- licensed real estate brokers all started to really raise the red flag we realized that um, initially criminals were targeting houses that were sitting inside of probate maybe. Out-of-state ownership was uh, a common theme that we were able to identify, and vacant land was another thing that was easily identified. Um, Vacant land particularly because you don't need somebody to give you access for you to go and take marketing pictures, right? It's just a piece of land that's Mm -hmm. sitting there. So vacant land was the lowest-lying fruit and the most commonly attempted theft that we were seeing coming into the department.
7: So if I am a homeowner and this is happening to me, like, am I able to try to cancel the sale or do something to stop it so I can stay in my home?
12: If you can find out about it before it closes escrow, then absolutely. Um, Title companies will halt their process of insuring the properties. Escrow officers will stop the escrows. Um, There are fraud prevention checklists at every level of real estate transactions. Now, this industry is on very, very high alert. For consumers, for property owners out there, what I suggest doing is setting up a Google alert with not only your name, but any property addresses that you own. Because if a licensed real estate agent um, is hired to sell a piece of property, it typically goes into a multiple listing service that then uses um, a system called IDX to broadcast it out to 10, 20, 100 different websites out there to market that property to the largest possible audience of buyers. And if you have a Google Alert set up, then your advertisement of your property that's being sold will be sent to you as an alert that this is on the World Wide Web being advertised for sale. And you would have the opportunity then as the bona fide owner to contact that real estate professional and say, hey, I I own this and I'm not selling it.
7: Right. Well, so you mentioned that the different Entities involved in the sale of land or in the sale of of real estate are on high alert. Are there things that they are trying to do to stop this from happening, maybe even if the actual owner of of a property isn't aware that it's happening?
12: Oh, absolutely. Um, A lot of real estate licensees have taken it upon themselves to step up and say, okay, hi, thank you for reaching out to me. I don't know who you are, so you're not a seller who is personally known to the real estate licensee. And a lot of them are saying, let me see our identification. And uh, some of the fake IDs that the department has seen, if you had asked for the ID up front, you would certainly realize that the seller of the property wasn't, you know, John Travolta from his days in Greece, right? <laughs> like, you can realize that this is definitely a fake identification. But I feel like the criminals have become more sophisticated with uh, falsifying that those types of government documents. And uh, it is... One part on the real estate licensee, there's there's some areas where licensees are sort of stepping up what they're doing at the very beginning of a sale, but it's not something that I can regulate. It's not something that I can at this time statutorily say, real estate agents must check a seller's identification and verify you're working with a bona fide seller. It's something that I hope the legislature will take action in this coming session and say, yes, real estate agents check a form of ID. You're required to show your identification in order to use a city landfill. I think it's reasonable that you could have to show an identification to a licensed real estate agent if you're claiming to be the owner of a piece of property. So, um, But that would take legislative action. I don't have the regulatory authority to require that of the licensees. I can tell you that the American Land Title Association uh, and the escrow officers out there are working on a fraud prevention checklist, and they check a number of different areas to try and verify, are they working with the bona fide owner of the piece of real property. And a lot of these um, fraudsters are caught right there at the escrow process, right there at the sort of gathering together of the information to issue title insurance. The escrow companies have become quite good at identifying when there is a fraudster. Um, And so All of the parts are working as independents right now, but we don't have anything that is a requirement in legislation of title insurance companies or real estate licensees to 100% of the time exercise these best practices.
7: All right. That is Susan Nicholson, Commissioner of the Arizona Department of Real Estate. Susan, thank you for your time. I appreciate it.
12: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: In Fronteras News. Arizona is receiving $24 million to build safer wildlife crossings and reduce collisions with most elk along a stretch of Interstate 17 south of Flagstaff. From our Fronteras desk in Flagstaff, Micho Morisco reports.
7: The money comes from a Federal Highway Administration grant that the Arizona Department of Transportation applied for. It'll be used to build a wildlife overpass near the Willard Springs area and eight-foot fencing, as well as escape ramps for trapped wildlife, and it will double up on cattle guards. It'll also connect with a game and fish fencing project near Munts Park that directs animals to two bridges. That area accounts for more than half of the wildlife collisions in the region. More than half of those involve crashes with half-ton elk. The bridge is expected to be used to steer bears, elk, deer, mountain lions, and smaller animals off the highway. Michel Marisco, KJZZ News, Flagstaff.
0: And finally, in science news. The ASU-led mission to the metal-rich asteroid Psyche passed a key milestone this week. The university's imager captured its first pictures, a moment known as First Light. From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis has more.
4: The dual-camera instrument is the latest in a series of successful data and sensor checks. It was created by ASU and Malin Space Science Systems in San Diego. After spending two weeks baking out any residual moisture from Earth, it performed without a hitch, snapping 68 pictures of a starfield in the constellation Pisces. Lindy Elkins-Tanton is Vice President for ASU's Interplanetary Initiative and Psyche Mission Lead.
12: It was so exciting to listen to the commands go up through the deep space network via radio to the spacecraft and have it happen.
4: The photos will be used for calibration and data verification. The craft launched on October 13th and will reach the asteroid Psyche in 2029. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix.